Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. We're running a little bonus episode to start off 2023. It's a talk I did with Cory Doctorow and Rebecca Giblin about their new book, Chokepoint Capitalism. I really enjoyed reading this book. It's all about artists and technology and platforms and how different kinds of distribution and creative tools create choke points for different companies to capture value that might otherwise go to artists and creators. In other words, it's a lot of decoder stuff. As we were prepping this episode, the decoder team realized it previews a lot of things we're going to talk about in 2023. Antitrust law, Ticketmaster, Spotify and the whole future of the music industry, Amazon and the book industry, and of course, being a creator that's trying to make a living on all of these platforms. The best part of the book is that Rebecca and Corey have some good ideas on how to actually solve some of the problems they talk about. As you'll hear Corey say, the book isn't just about listing all the problems. Half the book is about solutions. This conversation runs a little long. Rebecca and Corey actually made fun of me in the room because I just wanted to keep talking to them. They're so fun and smart. But it was a really great conversation. It was a lively room. I'm very glad we get to share it with you, the Decoder audience. Okay, here's Rebecca Giblin and Corey Doctora, the authors of Choke Point Capitalism. Here we go. Hello, everybody. I am not Corey Doctora or Rebecca Giblin. I'm Neil Patel. I'm the editor of The Verge. These lovely people have asked me to help talk about the book today, but introduce yourselves, Corey and Rebecca. Sure. I'm Corey Doctorow, and I'm one of the authors of this book, along with Rebecca. I write uh, lots of different things. I'm the author of more than 20 books, um, science fiction for adults, for young adults, for middle grades readers, graphic novels, short story collections, nonfiction. Uh, I'm also a special advisor to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and I have some academic affiliations in computer science and uh, library science. I'm Rebecca, I'm the author of three books, but this is the first one anyone might actually read. Um, I work, I'm a law professor, I uh, obsess over artist rights and access to knowledge and culture, um, and just do all kinds of things to try and generate evidence to figure out what's really going on and how we can do a better job um, of, of achieving both of those things. Um, most recently, I started a little publishing house where we published 160 books in order to um, to create a new way for, for out-of-print authors to get paid, but also to find out what kind of culture we're losing through that. Uh, and I've known Corey for, woof, we were just figuring it out, like about 10, 10 years, years or now. so. Yeah. yeah. 
I was going to start with a list of questions about choke point capitalism and the creator economy, but actually Amazon did us a great favor this week yeah. uh, by lowering rates for creators on Twitch in a way that I think just sort of fundamentally explains the thesis of your book. So why don't we walk through that? Sure. So uh, you've all heard of Amazon. You presumably all heard of Twitch. Amazon bought Twitch in 2014. And for an important piece of context, this phenomenon of, of very large firms buying out parts of their supply chain, it's pretty new. Until the Reagan years, it was generally considered illegal for very large firms to buy out their supply chain. That wasn't how companies grew. So this, this kind of thing that we have now where you have a company like Google that's made one and a half successful products in-house. They, they did a search engine and a Hotmail clone, and then everything else they did failed, and then everything they've done that's successful they bought from someone else, from their ad tech to their uh, mobile stack to their videos to their server management. Like that just wouldn't have happened historically. This is a new phenomenon that we have, this, this growth through acquisition. And Amazon bought Twitch, and they said what everyone who buys another company, every monopolist who buys another company always says, which is that there will be efficiencies and synergies. We'll make this company work better. Twitch has two sets of costs, right? They have these fixed costs, which is like developing the software, figuring out how to develop new features that help streamers get paid, that kind of thing. And then they have bandwidth. So the um, fixed costs are fixed no matter what. If you have a million streamers, you have five streamers, you still got to pay the same amount of money to develop those features. Bandwidth, though, like totally depends on how big you get. So if you're going to grow, you need cheap bandwidth. Amazon Amazon Web Services, like the cheapest bandwidth you can buy, right? Like they they are the world's biggest consumer of bandwidth, wholesaler of bandwidth. They can they can do a a, a real favor for Twitch. So they said, here we go. Here's our here's our new uh, service. Uh, and we're going to launch it. And they went out to the creators and they said, come on board and we'll give you a generous 50-50 split, which is to say we'll keep half the money you earn. But of course, there were some creators who didn't want to give half of their money to Amazon. And to those creators, they quietly said, don't tell anyone, we're going to give you 70%. So that's what they did. And they lured in a bunch of creators at that 70% rate. The, the cheaper guys were presumably uh, subsidizing them. Years go by. They become by far the leader in their sector, uh, and 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 now uh, people uh, are accustomed to using Twitch to watch streamers. They have the app, they have an account, maybe they've got subscriptions, and they're just kind of locked in. And if you want to be a streamer, you really got to show up for Twitch because Twitch has got your audience all in a corral. And so then they turn around to these seventy percenters and they say, "We're bumping you to fifty percent." We're altering the deal. Pray we don't alter it further. And they publish an account of why they're doing it. The president of the company is like, we're doing this for fairness. Because wasn't it unfair that all you working schmucks got 50%, but these superstars got 70%? And it was. Like, that is, like, materially unfair and kind of shady that they were doing it all on the down low. But it does raise this, like, really obvious question, which is why is the remedy for that not just giving Everybody 70%. After all, in his letter to his creative workers, he explains that they figured out how to like increase the revenue per minute of video by some fantastic amount, that, that each one of these people is making much more money for, for uh, Amazon. So 
why don't we use some of that money to change the split so that everybody gets this 70% rate that apparently they could afford? We can tell they can afford it because they were offering it. So this, this is the kind of a little parable about choke point capitalism. You stick all of the audience inside a walled garden, and then you say to the creators, you know, I know you want to reach your audience, uh, and we want to help you reach that audience, but to reach that audience, you're going to have to make some concessions because... If you don't make the concessions to us, well, you can try and go it on your own. But I think you'll find that everybody who wants to watch your uh, entertainment is inside our little walled garden here. So the particular part of this story that stuck with me was Amazon published a justification. Yeah, This is amazing. I just brought the quote up because that's oh, really stuck with me as well. And the justification is the rates. Yeah. This was Sam Biddle talking about this, who was just like, wait. Amazon is charging Amazon so much money to run the business via Amazon that it has no choice but to take more money from streamers. And that's really the essence of choke point capitalism. Sure. Right. So the justification is that the published rates for Amazon web services are quite high. And so to support one streamer, they have to pay like $1,000 a year or something. But the idea that Twitch is paying the published rates for Amazon web services is really quite ridiculous. Because n almost no big company pays the published rates for anything. Also, if Twitch wasn't owned by Amazon, they could go to Google Cloud, right. or Microsoft Azure. It's the consolidation that creates the, the self-serving justification. And it raises this interesting question, because if Amazon wasn't proposing to discount Twitch once it became an Amazon company, then what was the synergy? Right? What, where is the sa what savings do you realize from moving Twitch inside of Amazon and I think we see what the savings is, which is that you can suppress the wages of the creators who do the work that generate the revenue because you become the only game in town. That, that is like a, a, a demonstrable synergy that they've produced for their shareholders, uh, not for the streamers. And this is coming as well. This is coming for other creators in the Amazon universe because uh, Amazon, when, when the, the publishers tried to resist Amazon's play to, to get their e-books e up so cheaply that it was going like, to decimate their physical book business, um, the publishers resisted. Amazon retaliated by changing its rates for self-published authors to give them a 70% split, which was far, far, far higher than any kind of royalties you could get from a traditional publishing deal. So a lot of authors did jump ship. Um, but of course, those higher royalty rates are still only going to be in place until everybody is locked into that system in the same way they already are with Twitch. Then that's also going to be ratcheted down too. That's always the play. All right. Let me push back on both of you. <laughs> it should be obvious to this room that I agree with them. But let me put on my Bezos hat. Amazon does face some ferocious competition for streamers. Uh, YouTube exists. There was a platform famously called Mixer that Microsoft invested a lot of money in and paid streamers to stream exclusively on Mixer. Uh, Ninja, I think most famously, was paid exclusively by, by Microsoft to bring audience to Mixer. It was a spectacular, I think it lasted less than three months. And then now he's back on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think you're proving the point, right? Which is that new market entrants struggle because they're, they just... But the new market entrants here in this case are Google and Microsoft. So Google's managed... You're right that Google's number two, right? And they're... they're it's not like YouTube's a bad business. But um, there's this amazing thing that happens when a sector is highly concentrated, which is that without ever having to sit around a table and, and collude, they arrive at a common position, 
uh, it just becomes just a kind of natural element of the culture. And, you know, there are lots of reasons to, to explain it or lots of theories like these people, like if there's only a couple of companies in a sector, then everyone who's worked at one has worked at the other, right? That's how you become a senior executive. There's no room in the org chart for you. You get poached by the other guy and then you come back and forth. And in the meantime, you're like, godparents to each other's kids and executors of each other's estates. You stand up for each other at weddings. You go on vacations together. That persists even after you leave the firm because wouldn't it be weird if when you quit Amazon and went to YouTube that you had to leave all your friends behind? Of course they stay friends, right? So so there's this one explanation, which is that they just all end up uh, friends with each other and then they they converge on it. There is another explanation, which is that sometimes they sit around a table and collude. So one of the things that came out of the state's lawsuit against um, the ad tech duopoly, uh, Google and Facebook, was the revelation that Google and Facebook had a project called Jedi Blue, where they just sat down and illegally colluded to rig the ad market so that they could steal money from publishers and advertisers and put it in their own pockets and also make sure that nobody else could enter that market and offer better rates to either advertisers or publishers or both. So that's the other thing they sometimes do, because it turns out when you all know each other and you're all really chummy and there's only two of you, you can, in fact, sit around a table and just, like, agree. You know, uh, Sorry, go ahead, Rebecca. I was going to say, and you don't even need to do that in highly concentrated markets. Uh, you can just do some public signaling. Oh, we're kind of thinking about doing this. And then the other one or two or three companies in the market are like, we're kind of thinking about doing this. And then once all the public signaling's done, which doesn't get in any kind of antitrust trouble... Uh, Lo and behold, everybody kind of coordinates in lockstep and does the same thing. Um, and so that's how we often end up in sure. as well. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people looked at that uh, photo of the tech leaders around the, the leatherette billiard table at the top of Trump Tower after the election and went like, how can all these bastions of like liberal erudite capitalism meet with this, you know, short fingered vulgarian and his, and his, uh, mountain Irie in, in Manhattan. And that's, you know, fair enough. Right. But like, you know, what's weirder is that everybody who runs the tech sector fits around one table. Right. And, and, you know, if there were a thousand companies of similar size, not only would they not be able to agree on what their common lobbying position is, they wouldn't have been able to agree on how to cater their annual meeting, right? Like if you've ever tried to get 15 people to agree on dinner, you will know that there's just this like exponential coordination costs when the number of firms that have to agree gets higher. And we saw this in the early days of the tech wars, right? Where the, the tech companies were all mostly small, and the entertainment industry was mostly concentrated. And there was this period where the entertainment industry won these fantastic legislative wins one after another after another against the tech sector that was, you know, in terms of total market cap, much larger. But they were just disorganized because there was a lot of them. So, Corey, I came up reading you. I became a deeply failed copyright lawyer because, because of you, I think. Um, I was not any good at it. But a lot of that moment stemmed from consumer desires. Why can't I get all the stuff on this service? Why is your DRM in the way of what I would like to do with the content that I have paid for? And a lot of it was cons like consumer preference to consolidate all of your experiences in one place or to build a user experience that you yourself would like. So the, the, in fact, we talk about this in the book. We talk about uh, how a blanket license might demonstrate, might deliver that, because I think you're absolutely right. Nobody wants to have three libraries that they keep their media in. That's why Audible, having a mandatory requirement that you use their DRM if you publish with them is so scary, because those listeners who buy your audiobooks 
are locked forever to Amazon's platform by the by the copyright locks that come with it that can't be legally removed. It's a giving someone a tool to remove that is a felony punishable by a five year prison sentence and a five hundred thousand dollar fine, even though copyright infringement takes place. So they get to lock audiences in. And I think you're right. People like Audible because all the titles they want are there. But nobody is like, you know what I like most about Audible? And if it went away, I'd leave is the fact that all of these books are locked to Audible, right? That's not anyone's, that's not a unique selling proposition for anyone. People like iTunes having all the music, right? But nobody is using iTunes for the DRM. And so if you remove the DRM, all that you get is a new market where if I enter the market, I can say, hey, uh, have you got a bunch of iTunes songs that you've got and they're stuck in Apple's silo and you want a better player that's more full-featured and does stuff that Apple doesn't do? Just click this button. I'll import your library for you and uh, I'll give you all those features, right? That, that, that is entirely compatible with this idea of consumer preference. And the fact that um, Audible has managed to create this choke point with the DRM and capture such an enormous share of the market um, has resulted in I think, one of the most egregious things that we write about in the book, which is a scandal called Audible Gate, which some of you might have heard about. Um, basically, what happened is that independent authors and smaller publishers get their books onto Audible via something called the ACX platform, which is also owned by Audible Amazon. Uh, and they have really opaque uh, royalty statements. And they had this incredible shakedown that they were pulling. Let me explain how it worked. So basically, you might have seen this if you do have Audible yourself, um, that there's a really generous returns policy. You can return a book that you've listened, even if you've listened to the whole thing, even if you liked it, no questions asked. And this is only available to people who are actually subscribers of Audible. And what Amazon is doing there is just what we were talking about in that video on the way in, um, which is they're trying to use that to lock in subscribers. They want people to be paying every single month and if one of the ways that they keep people locked in is by allowing them to return these books, then they want to do it. But who pays for that? Now, this was not at all clear in the contracts and it was definitely not clear in the accounting, right? But what was happening is every single time one of those books got returned, and boy, was it happening a lot. Some people were using this like a library to get like unlimited credits and keep listening to books every single month, right? What would happen is the authors would have to pay all of those royalties back, Right. So um, the only reason that anybody found out about this, oh, th th sorry, the outrageous bit with the accounting is that Amazon would say, you've sold three units, right? That was net sales. Um, and so it wouldn't be like, you sold 13 units, but there were 10 returns. That was all hidden. But then one day uh, there was a data glitch. Three weeks of returns all showed up in a single day. And finally, people realized what was going on. And that allowed them to, uh, independent authors, to mobilize against this. And they've been fighting really hard in this campaign led by uh, an incredible author and now activist called Susan May. Um, they have managed to get some change, but it's really, really hard to get Amazon and Audible to do anything other than the bare minimum to avert the scandal. And so it's still absolutely outrageous what's going on. And they estimate the cost of the wage theft to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars that were taken from these authors. And the authors pay for, to produce the books. These independent books are produced at the author's expense. Mm -hmm. They pay the narrators or they enter into royalty splits with the narrators. Either way, the, they, they, they all get screwed. And Amazon locks them into 
Yeah, incredible. Seven-year contracts, right, without investing anything in the contracts. Um, sorry, anything in the production of the work. And then the other thing is once these authors started looking into it, uh, this other author called Colleen Cross, who uh, used to be a financial fraud accountant and now writes financial fraud thrillers, uh, she started like really digging into, hang on a minute, if they're doing that, what else are they doing? And she started looking at what was going on with the royalties and just like, hang on a second, what we're getting paid doesn't actually make sense if they're paying us according to what the, the contracts say we're supposed to get paid. And she thinks they're actually deducting the cost of those returns twice. Um, and this is also where we get into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, nobody knows for sure exactly what's going on because, again, really, really difficult to get any kind of information out of Amazon and Audible. Um, and these authors, like they're really atomized, individual, um, they're, they're, they're not unionized for reasons because it's super hard to, to, to unionize as individual workers, especially here in the States. Um, but it, it, I mean, I, I'm so just so outraged even talking about it because it just <laughs> stacks on every single abuse that you can possibly think of, puts it on all these people, hides it, and there is essentially no redress. And, and those of you who backed our Kickstarter will know that we kickstarted the audiobook so that we didn't have to sell it on Audible, but that we took the chapter about how Audible has stolen hundreds of millions of dollars from creators, we packaged it as a standalone audiobook, and we published it using ACX as an Audible exclusive. So it's the only part of the book that you can get on Audible is the part that describes the scam that is Audible. Please don't buy it. Don't buy it. Yeah. We have to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to spend a little more time talking about Spotify and the music industry. We'll be right back. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back. One thing that struck me as I was reading the book is you know, the first big chunk of it is about the music industry. You're obviously describing Audible, um, which is another audio format. There's another piece of the book that's about Spotify and podcasting. It seems like these choke points are stronger in audio formats than anywhere else. It, it, in, uh, to me, the music industry is always the leading edge of the battle between the tech industry and the culture industry. Whatever happens to the music industry seems to happen to everyone else five years later. You can see it coming with Spotify and streaming. It came with Disney Plus and HBO Max. Like It just came down the pike that we're going to DRM everything and stream it to you. Why do you think that is? 
Well, what's really interesting about music is how these choke points kind of stack together and interact. And so, for example, we start with the fact that uh, there are three record labels that control, I think, still almost 70% of the global recorded music market. And they own the three publishing companies that control almost as much. Uh, they've accumulated enormous reservoirs of copyright rights over time, not just from investing in the creation itself, but often by buying these up from distressed companies at fire sale prices over time. And because copyrights last so long, we're talking life of author plus 70 years, um, a little bit different for sound recordings, but we don't need to get too wonky here. Um, even though we don't need record labels um, for production and distribution in the way that we used to, they've still got outsized power over the future of the recorded uh, music markets because they control those rights. And so people criticize streaming companies a lot and they're outraged that it doesn't pay artists better. But what a lot of people forget is that it was the, the major record labels that decided how streaming was going to work and how it would pay, right? And then on top of that, we, we've got those, those copyright reservoirs. But then we've also got this really arcane, complicated system around music licensing so that it's really, really difficult to start a streaming company. There are so many incredibly passionate, knowledgeable people who care about artists, who really want to try different models, make things work um, in different ways. But because the licensing system is so complicated um, and expensive and because the record labels require such enormous investments in order to um, enter the market, right, people just are not able to do so in any kind of numbers, which is why we've got a streaming market dominated by Spotify and a few others that are owned by big tech. Those are the people that can afford to play. Uh, so there's uh, the interaction of those things. Um, Spotify would, like it talks, um, Daniel Eck talks about, how we'd love um, the, the licensing system to be uh, simplified, that this is something that really is limiting their growth. It's so expensive for Spotify to start up in new markets as well, right? But it also has the effect of limiting the competition that Spotify has to face. And that's a reality that, that really dramatically affects the way that, that people can get their music to market. It does seem like the the duration of this sort of standard copyright regime around the world is a real problem here. But it also seems like the opacity of how the big companies manage those copyright. Like they own a lot of it. They take really long licenses. When you sign up for any social platform, you have given everything to Google from the jump every time you upload a YouTube video. Is that a place to undo the choke point? Is that a place where you can extract value back out of the system? I'll, I'll jump in again just because there's one other thing that we, could, that we can stack on that also helps answer this question. There are huge inefficiencies in this system around how we actually get the money that, that is paid to the streaming companies out to artists. So every country has its own collecting societies, for example, that are uh, you know, very often tasked with matching the revenues to the creators and getting it paid. They've all got their own individual databases that they look after, maintain individually, right? Uh, it's an incredibly inefficient system. Very often they can't even work out who Beyonce is, right? And there's, it's really expensive as well. So um, even when you look at the money that is in streaming, the amount of it that gets siphoned away at other points in the value chain because there are all of these other choke points as well, um, that's a huge influence on the amount of money that actually gets paid out to creators. And that's, I think, a one place where we, it's, it's a no-brainer where we should be looking at that 
and uh, doing something similar to what was done with the Music um, Modernization Act here, which was in, in the publishing side to say, well, this system is just simply not working. It didn't work for anyone, so the incentives were there to fix it. We need to do that in other places as well, get the incentives right, stop so much leakage and get more money actually going to artists. Yeah, you know, the one of the things that prompted us to write this book is having spent decades in a, a kind of false binary debate where people said, look, we you either have to brief for team uh, entertainment industry, which wants to make more copyright and make it last longer, or you have to brief for team tech, which wants... At, at best, different copyright or maybe less copyright. And that you have to just sort of, you pick one side. And if you're a creator, you pick a side. You become a streamer, you become a traditional musician, whatever. And you hope that when this clash of the titans is over, that whichever giant emerges victorious, if you chose the right one, that they will uh, reward your loyalty by dribbling a few more crumbs for you once they once they uh, manage to take over the, the industry. And we thought that this was just wrong, that, that there is a kind of excluded middle here in the form of creators seizing their own power. And that one of the problems is that so much of this debate ended up revolving around copyright, which, you know, as a, as a not great copyright lawyer, by, by your account, you'll know that like nobody understands, right? That, that it's a field that most artists don't understand well, most people in publishing don't understand, um, many people who work in uh, culture ministries don't understand very well. It is often the case that just sort of basic factual errors emerge in these debates. And the, the problem is that if, if you have a market where the thing that keeps artists from getting paid is that they have to pass through a choke point in order to uh, reach an audience, then whoever has that choke point will take whatever copyright you give them and use it to whatever extent they can to make the choke point stronger so that they can extract more things for more people to go through. And I compare it to having a kid who gets bullied every day for their lunch money. If, if your kid has all their lunch money stolen every day at school, it doesn't matter how much lunch money you give them. Right? They're still not going to get fed. And even if the bullies go out and have a campaign, feed America's hungry children, give them more lunch money, it's not going to get your kid fed. And so... One of the things that we decided to do with this book is make fully half of the book about what to do about these questions, not to have what, what someone, when we were pitching the book around, called a chapter 11 book, which is 10 chapters of like eye-watering detail about how fucked up things are, and an 11th chapter of kind of bland nostrums about we should, we should do something about this. We made half the book shovel-ready highly technical proposals, we found the leverage points that you could stick a lever into and yank on it and money would fall out and fall on top of artists. And so, you know, one of the things we talk about is a, a better database system, right? Like if we built a better database system for rights payments, we could simplify the mechanism by which rights are paid and ensure that nobody could could uh, proffer the excuse that the reason you didn't get your money is they couldn't figure out where you live, Beyonce. Yeah. And maybe I'll jump in and say, I, I feel like we're, we're focusing a lot on streaming here when we talk about, you know, why musicians aren't getting paid, but there are so many other parts to it. Like, no matter what we do in terms of fixing the databases, there are heaps of musicians for which streaming is just not going to be the thing that that makes the money. People who um, who, who write really who make really complicated music that doesn't just get listened to ad infinitum on repeat, for example. You know, they might make money 
touring, okay? But then we see that we've got Live Nation shaking down creators and record labels in extraordinary ways. Uh, when we were writing the book, we always, we interviewed a whole bunch of people. We always gave them an opportunity to be um, anonymous if they didn't want to be identified. And almost nobody took us up on it except the folks we spoke to about Live Nation. Uh, then, you know, you've also got... You should say what Live Nation is. Oh, sorry. Live Nation is the cloud that surrounds all of you at all times. Yeah, sorry. I, I guess I'm very, very deep into this. I'm like, don't we all know how evil Live Nation is? <laughs> Live Nation uh, it owns... It's Ticketmaster, right? Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster. Uh, but also a bunch of the biggest uh, music, live music venues in the world. Oh, and they have a promotion site as well, right? So music promotion. Um, the, the ticket business gives them an incredible insider view at like which artists are rising, which gives them an advantage in, in nabbing them before anybody else can. Their control over venues, uh, they they act like mobsters. Uh, there was an antitrust um, just last year or the uh, antitrust case brought by the DOJ last year or the year before where uh, they had about six venues who came forward anonymously because they were so afraid of reprisals and they were describing mob shakedowns, right? They, I think literally it was one of them said was like, we're not telling you you've got to go through us for your ticketing. We're just laying out your options. We're telling you what will happen if you don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This isn't a threat. We're just explaining what happens if you make the ill-advised choice to do business with someone other than us. Yeah. We're not threatening you. Yeah, we'll, but we'll never book anything in any of your venues again. And that's too bad because your business will be destroyed. Um, and then, you know, outside of uh, Live Nation, we've also got radio, right? In the U.S., it's one of a very, very small group of countries where um, radio does not pay artists for airplay of songs. Um, you're in a tiny uh, cabal with Rwanda, <laughs> North Korea. Uh, Always that list. <laughs> it's like the United States sucks at this thing along with North Korea, and it's like... Yeah. There's always that list. And there have been literally dozens of bills that have been put to Congress to try and change this and get artists paid for that use, which is paid in almost every other country, but big radio manages to defeat them. So we can see over and over again that copyright and contracts and all of these other things we get into in the book, they're servants of big business, not servants of artists and not the public. So I want to remind everybody, we've got some questions coming in if you care to use your Monopoly-provided phone uh, to go on the open web. You can ask us questions. We'll take them. I do want to get to solutions. Yeah. But before I make that turn, I want to go from one wonky system of law to another deeply wonky system of law. So we talked a bunch about copyright law. We're talking a lot about competition and how there should be more companies and artists should have more choices and consumers should have more choices. We are right at the edge of... Boy, wouldn't it be great if the antitrust enforcement regime in the United States of America was extremely active and I know Joe Biden walked around with a hammer just breaking up companies. Is that one of the, your solutions? So it's not a thing we're opposed to. We just think that it's slow, right? And it's, you know, the problem is that um, there's that joke from Ireland whose punchline is, if you wanted to get there, I wouldn't start from here, right? That, <laughs> that historically what uh, antitrust regulators did, competition regulators did, was prevent monopoly formation. Because monopolies are very sticky, right? They have like they have a lot of power, right? They're too big to fail and too big to jail. It took 69 years to break up AT&T. So yeah, let's go after the live live nation. I almost said live journal. Live <laughs> let's go after live journal, everybody. Nice after the live journal that murdered. It's been enough. Let's bring back fanfic. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's go after the live nation Ticketmaster merger and the Instagram 
Facebook merger and the Google YouTube merger, but you know, it's going to take 69 years. It's just, it's a long time or maybe a decade. It's a long run process. And while we're waiting, we need other stuff. And we do have more antitrust enforcement than we've had in, you know, 40 years. We've got these three incredible trust busters in the U.S. government right now. Lena Khan is running the FTC, Tim Wu, who's running the White House uh, Big Tech Antitrust, and Jonathan Cantor, who's who's running it for the DOJ, who said uh, on his first day in the job, he quoted uh, Jim Comey, and he said to his his uh, lawyers there, how many of you have never lost a case? And, you know, the lawyers proudly raised their hands, and he said, you guys are the chicken shit club. If you're not losing cases, you're not going after the right people because they're, they're, you're, you're just going after the easy pickings. So they want to do it. It's just a long-run process. And what we focus on are these like leverage points that that we can attack while we're waiting. So I'll give you an example, right? If you sign a contract involving royalties, it usually involves the right to audit your royalty statements. Now that's expensive. It's hard to do, but like lots of creators groups, I'm a member of the Science Fiction Writers Association. We have like a lottery where a couple of times a year we'll pick a member and they can go get their, their royalty statements audited at the organization's expense. Problem is that if you find missing money, generally speaking, They'll say, no, 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 you've got it wrong. We don't owe it to you. Sue us if you want to get it. And of course, you can't afford to sue them. They go, you know, maybe you got a point. We'll settle with you. We'll give you the money. But you got to sign a non-disclosure. Which means that if you, like many of the people we interviewed for this book, find large amounts of money, one person we spoke to found six figures, money stolen from them. and, And this will shock and amaze you. But uh, nearly every instance of this, all but one that we encountered in our research, involved an error in favor of the publisher, label, or studio, and not the musician. Or I don't know how that happens. It is really just a genuinely incredible set of coincidences. We're talking tens of thousands of yeah. examples. Tens of thousands. Okay, one. One. <laughs> that was in the artist benefit. So, um, you know, you find several hundred thousand dollars that were stolen from you. You're probably not alone, right? The identically situated artists have also had large sums of money stolen from them. But to get the money, you have to promise not to tell them where to look for their own stolen wages. Well, all of these contracts, because of market consolidation, are consummated in California, New York, and Washington State. Contracts of state matter, right? We could just introduce three very short bills that said as a matter of public policy, non-disclosure is not enforceable in the state of New York where it relates to uh, royalty statement, uh, material omissions or errors in royalty statements right? At the stroke of a pen, we would put more money in the pocket of more artists all over the world than all the copyright term extensions the last 40 years combined, right? It's, it's literally a point where you stick a two-paragraph bill, give it a little twist, and money just falls out of the system on artists, right? So w- we devote half the book to this, right? We devote half the book to these kinds of proposals. And one of the things that an editor told us while rejecting the book, he said, you know, I love this book, but I got to the end and I realized all your solutions were systemic and none of them involved things that individuals can do. And we, we were like, I feel very bad for the person who asked, what can individuals do? Uh, you were fine. You did great. And I appreciate your I verb and your vigor. Impulse, Didn't you, know Corey was going to dunk on you. I have to tell you, like you can't re- I understand because it feels futile, but you can't recycle your way out of climate change. You can't shop your way out of monopoly. Right, like these are systemic problems. They need systemic solutions. What the individual can do is think of themselves as part of a movement, and if you join a movement, then you and the people with you can make change, but not you on your own. So let's talk about that movement just in the day to day. 
right? This is the what can I as an individual do. Yeah. There are a lot of iPhones in this room. There are a lot of, I'm assuming, Netflix. Now I'm just making claims about all of you. But like a lot of people in this room probably have Spotify and Netflix and watch YouTube. Raise your hand if you don't watch YouTube. Zero people. We're going to publish the audio somewhere. Wait, you don't watch YouTube? Yeah. Not, oh wait, not often enough do it is often. not the answer, <laughs> right? It like it, the, the it surrounds us. There's there's a reason they call them clouds. Yeah, we are in the vapor of the big services. Totally. Should you try? I mean, a lot of what you guys describe as choke points are distribution monopolies. At the end of the day, if you want to reach the audience, the audience is all on Spotify. Yeah, the artist has to go to Spotify. Should we be seeking out alternative distribution points? But it's hard, right? There's a reason why we go to YouTube because everything there is there and it's convenient. There's a reason as well. People buy everything on Amazon now. Like it's a few years since I've been in the city. I've been so shocked to see how it's all of the packages that come into my building have got prime tape on them, right? I went to Whole Foods the other day. It's look how convenient it is to return your Amazon purchases. You can just do it right here. Oh, and by the way, we'll give you a discount on a whole bunch of groceries if you've got Amazon and like free book rentals and like free video. Like it's against your economic self-interest to not be part of Prime, except it's so incredibly dangerous because once we're all in Prime, we're getting choked as well. But what the kinds of things that we've suggested are just like, well, how do we then make it easier for people to make different decisions, but without causing that inconvenience? And one of the things we talk about is, well, if we were allowed to bypass DRM, where it's for a non-copyright infringing purpose, which after all is what the copyright treaties was all asked of us, you could have like some really subversive little plugins, for example, where you, you, um, you go, you read the reviews on Amazon, you find the book or the product that you want on Amazon, and then there's a lovely little pop-up that shows you a local shop where you can get that from instead. Right? Because one of the reasons that we use Amazon is because who's got the, the mental bandwidth to try and figure out where else you get that like weird thing from, right? So yeah, like we can't, it, it doesn't make sense to force everybody into all of this unnecessary labor to bypass these systems, but it does make sense to make it easier for people to get genuine choice to support, you know, things that are much more in line with their values. You, you know, during the Napster Wars, when the record label sued 19,000 children and accounted for 2% of the federal docket. This is the thing that drove me out of the legal industry. Yeah. I was like, so oh, this that, job sucks. When that happened, there were a lot of people who said, you should just not listen to music from the labels. And I would, and I was baffled, right? Because I was like, you want to build a popular movement predicated on not liking popular music. Just silence. Sit I, there in silence. Yeah, I have to tell you, like... There's like a teenager streaming silence on Spotify now. It's like uh, making six figures a day. I, I think it's like the successor to Witch House or something. <laughs> I think that, you know, I think that, like, it should be self-evident that if you require that people not do things that are popular, you will not be popular, right? <laughs> like this should just kind of come with the territory. And you know, one thing that crystallized this for me is one of the best books I've read on antitrust and monopoly, which is a book by someone who should be familiar to you all as New Yorkers, Zephyr Teachout, ran for governor a couple of years ago. Zephyr wrote this book called um, Break Em Up. And at the end, she's got this thing where she says, look, if you're going to a, uh, a union picket and instead of being on the picket line, you drive around for two hours to find a mom and pop to buy your markers from to make your sign so you don't buy them from Amazon, you are not helping the movement, 
right? That like, you know, that, that what you have to do is, I, I don't want to be all Steven Pinker rationalist here, but you do have to think about what is the effective use of your time in making the change you want to make. And if it's like running around looking for handcrafted artisanal made in China goods to buy rather than buying them from Amazon, instead of having the time to work on these issues in a systemic way, or even having the time to relax with your family and recharge your batteries so that you can go and work on these issues in a systemic way instead of being frazzled from driving all over town looking for your, your, your whittled you know, leather apron and wax mustache version of the product, um, then, then, you know, by all means, right? Like choose your battles, like literally choose that. Don't choose the meaningless consumer battle that conceives of yourself as an ambulatory wallet, right? Think of the, choose the, choose the collective battle that works on your collective strength. And remember the problem with Amazon is not that it delivers things efficiently and that it makes it easy to find the thing that you want. The problem with Amazon is the way that it arranges uh, um, the uh, commercial relations between the participants in that value chain, including the manufacturers, the, the laborers of the manufacturers, the drivers and deliverers, the warehouse workers, the authors who supply the books, and so on. Those are the problems. Right? The problem isn't that the Kindle bookstore allows people to self-publish. That's awesome. Right? The problem is the social arrangements. And no one came down off a mount with two stone tablets saying, Jeffrey, thou shalt arrange your self-publishing empire such that the authors get totally screwed. Right? Like you could absolutely make the Kindle store and take out the screw the author part, and it'd be great. That last piece around DRM, it was the book publishers that insisted on the DRM for the Kindle, not Amazon itself. I think Amazon in another world would have asked for DRM and had that request refused or denied, but it was the publishers themselves. It's, it's often the creators themselves mm-hmm. who are asking for greater protections in a, where in a software world, those protections end up shooting in the foot and increasing yeah. switching costs for consumers. How do you break that cycle? So, you know, the, the thing is that, um, DRM as a technical matter doesn't work. I'm a pretend computer scientist. I have an honorary doctorate in computer science. Uh, And even as a pretend computer science, I'm here to tell you that nobody in the field except for people who work for DRM companies thinks that DRM can work. Uh, It's making bits that are harder to copy is like making water that's less wet. It's just not, it's not a thing. It's not a thing that we will ever do. There are other ways that we've shown that, that you can increase revenue. Um, The best one is like offering a good product at a good price. People buy that voluntarily. Uh, But the, the thing where you just add these restrictions and then felonize baking it in, and I'll tell you how you know that DRM doesn't work is there's a law against breaking DRM. If DRM worked, you wouldn't need the law, right? Because DRM would work. Right? You would just say, oh, well, the DRM works, so nobody can make a thing to break our DRM. Um, what the law has done is, in fact, encourage firms to make shittier and shittier DRM. Today's DRM is like a one-molecule-thick layer wrapped around the, the digital file that you know, falls apart if you sneeze on it. But it's, uh, what it does let them do is take any firm that attempts to enter the market by unwrapping that DRM and and charge them with a literal felony, felony contempt of business model, basically. And so um, publishers bought a bill of goods and the record labels bought a bill of goods. But I'll tell you, the record labels turned around, right? So Steve Jobs was like, we're going to launch the iTunes store and we're going to save you guys from piracy by giving you DRM. A couple of years go by and they're like, 
we don't want to charge 99 cents for all of our songs. And sometimes we want to sell whole albums and not individual tracks. And Steve Jobs was like, that's not how things work at Apple, right? You're holding it wrong. And they were like, no, 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 that's what we want to do. And he was like, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, if, if you want to put DRM on it uh, from the iTunes store, you're going to have to do this. And the, the iPod will only play uh, DRM music from the iTunes store. And when real, real networks tried to put DRM on the iPod, we sued them for breaking the DRM that, helped, that stops what software you can load onto the iPod. So really, if you want to protect your music, it's going to have to be on our terms. And they were like, what are we going to do? And Jeff Bezos turned around and said, I'm going to launch an MP3-only, no DRM music store whose slogan is DRM, don't restrict me, right? That was the, that was the launch slogan for, for the uh, Amazon music store. And they turned around, they were like, absolutely. Now, today, they operate Audible, and they don't let you choose whether you're going to have DRM. They require you to have DRM. And the major distributors, although you can choose whether you want DRM on your ebook, the major distributors don't. So our plucky little lefty publisher, Beacon Books, which is 150 years old, owned by the Unitarian Universalists, published Howard Zinn. Uh, uh, Albert Einstein once said that if the world will survive, it will be because of the noble efforts of the Unitarian Universalists and Beacon Press. They've got an amazing brag sheet. They don't distribute themselves. They're distributed by Random House, which is like the largest publishing monopoly in the industry. Random House wouldn't carry our audiobook, or our ebook, rather, because we said you can't put DRM on it. And they were just like, it's too hard for us to tick the box that says no DRM on some of these books. We only distribute with DRM. So the, the copy that you buy on Amazon, if you buy it on Amazon, I don't know why you would, is, uh, although many of you are, because it is the number one Amazon antitrust book right now, <laughs> which is weird. Uh, but uh, if you buy that, we self-publish that with Beacon, right? It, we put it in the Kindle store as like a Kindle self-published title. It didn't go through the Random House channel. So what's happened now is that although maybe the entertainment industry provided the initial impetus, it's now become non-discretionary. Like you can't sell a movie to Netflix for distribution and say, but I don't want the DRM. We have to take one more break. When we come back, we're taking questions from the audience, which means we end up talking about the blockchain. That is not my fault. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're back. I want to take the last few minutes here for questions. If you have more, please send them in. Here's one that says, it sounds like the labels and publishers are more of a problem than Spotify. 
And I think the second question here that is basically the follow-up, say Spotify cut its rate from 30-70 to 90-10. Would that make a difference? The thing is the economics of streaming are really difficult, okay? It does cost a lot to shift this. It costs a lot in the licensing and complying with those mazes that I talked about, right? And it's a business that operates at scale. So it's only probably ever going to be the artists that are the most commercial and that have a lot of volume that are going to see substantial revenues from that. That's kind of the nature of the beast. But music has always been a place where it's really difficult to make money. I mean, yes, there's absolutely improvements that we can make. And I think in particular, one thing that would be really important here is more transparency, right? So there has been, for example, uh, Deezer has been trying to, for a number of years now, to run a different kind of model, uh, which is called a user-centric model. So this is going to be slightly wonky, but stay with me. So the way that it works at the moment you, you sign up to a streaming, a streaming platform, uh, you, you pay your money, and then that all goes into a pool and it's distributed proportionally um, to everybody based on how often everybody is streamed. So if you are just going onto Spotify and you are just listening to Zoe Keating um, 20 times in that one month, your money doesn't just go to Zoe Keating. Your money goes into the pool and it goes to Drake. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Deez has been talking about how they would really love to try a, a user-centric model where your money gets matched to the actual artists that you listen to. So somebody that listens to low-calorie music all the time, elevator music, those chill-time ambient um, artists or whatever, right? And but they're listening to it kind of 24-7 to like keep the voices out of their head, then the, the those artists get relatively less, okay? But somebody who's listening to more experimental, challenging, music or you know maybe just listens a little bit less that their money would just go to the artists that they're doing now our understanding and what we've seen reported is that it's the labels who are really blocking um, this kind of move from happening but also the lack of transparency in this industry means we don't even have any modeling to really kind of figure out accurately how this would we we don't know for sure like who would be the winners and who would be the losers because we don't have transparency to kind of find out how different ways of dividing up the pie would work and so that means that we can't have public debate around how it how it should be so I think like the number one thing that we could do straight away, and we saw it with the Audible Gate example about how much change we can get by shining a light into dark corners, is we need to have more transparency everywhere, and including in streaming. Yeah, it's, you know, back to that joke from Ireland. It's, I, I always want to call it an Irish joke. It is not like Irish joke means something different. Joke from Ireland. If you <laughs> wanted to get there, you wouldn't start from here. You know, so the story of Spotify and the labels is really instructive. So you have the labels, they control all the catalog. They control the catalog not because they invested directly in it, but because they bought uh, their nascent rivals and their major rivals, often at fire sale prices. Um, The Spotify launches, in order to get access to that catalog, Spotify sells significant chunks of equity to the labels. So the labels are investors in Spotify. They own a big piece of it. They negotiate a rate with Spotify that's very low uh, per stream. Um, that means that the revenue that Spotify generates uh, doesn't come to the labels in their guise as licensors who have licensed music to them. It comes to them as investors who have made an investment 
because now Spotify has a better monetary, but cash basis, right? They're paying less for the music they've got, but they also have a most favored nation status deal. So if you're an independent label and you go in, you have to sell at the same rate that the labels themselves have done. So you can see how you get like this knock-on effect where you have the monopoly that begets the monopoly, you have dirty dealing that begets the dirty dealing, and then you have an enormous amount of opacity in the relations between the labels and Spotify. So the labels go in and they say, oh, well, we're going to take a lower per stream rate, but in order to protect our artists, we want a minimum monthly payout of X million dollars. Well, okay, if you get X million dollars every month, but because of the low stream rate, 20 million of it is not uh, attributable to any given stream because you're not charging much for the stream. That's unattributed revenue. And you get to do what you want with it. You can distribute it to the artists you favor. You can put it in a special account that gets ended up spent on, you know, ivory handle back scratchers. Whatever you want, you can you can do with that money. And there's no obvious way to know what's going on. It's all sort of hidden uh, uh, inside this very opaque set of interlocking commercial arrangements. Oh, can I jump in there? Yeah. So that's actually a great example of the value of transparency, right? Because that's how it used to be. And then there was uh, the Spotify contract with, I think it was Sony, was leaked. Everybody kind of found out about all of this, uh, the ways these deals were structured. And at that, at that time... Merge leak that deal? Uh-huh. Not out there? Uh, it, was us. it was very nice. That's right. It was you. You're in the book with that one. Nice. Uh, so uh, when when that got leaked and everybody kind of finally got confirmation that a lot of stuff they'd suspected was happening was actually happening, then the major labels got kind of publicly shamed into changing the rules around uh, what you did with the, the black box money, the unattributable revenue. So again, we can just see as soon as you shine light on those dark corners, we can actually achieve change without having to wait for the... 50 years it might take for an antitrust case to wind its way through. And, you know, we've got precedent for this. So before uh, the Enron scandal, um, it was common for uh, uh, labels to run a th- a shifts of CD pressings. So they would, press the, they would press CDs literally in the dead of night, and they wouldn't show up on your royalty statements. And they would sell those, right? So they could just trouser a third of the money. After Enron, they passed Sarbanes-Oxley. Sarbanes-Oxley attributes personal criminal liability to executives who knowingly signed false uh, financial statements. And the third shifts ended. Right? They just like it. Just turns out that if you threaten to put the decision makers who are who who know about those third shifts in prison for them, it can reform their conduct. So we know that like if we if if we uh, change the incentives. For the large firms, the large firms will will do better. I mean, this is one of the problems with the argument that you often hear that if you're not paying for the product, you're the product. It turns out that like what really determines how a firm treats you is whether they face any penalties for mistreating you. It has nothing to do whether you're paying them. It has to do with whether or not they fear retribution. And if you if they fear retribution, they will behave accordingly. As our friends on the right like to tell us, incentives matter. <laughs> All right, someone asked this question, and I would like to thank them because now it doesn't seem like my idea. I appreciate you. What about Web3 and the blockchain? (laughs) So I'd like to remind you that 98.7% of all conversations about the blockchain are Uh, (laughs) non-consensual. So I I, want to point out I'm going to do my best. Abstractly, the the promise of the blockchain solves many of the problems that so you have discussed. Here's the thing. People, people who – this is the part where me and the blockchain are on the same side. Is When I hear 
blockchain people talk about why they why they want to block the chain. Uh, it they're always saying things that I agree with, right? They want to devolve control. They want to spread it out. They want to make um, a system where users have more control. They want to make a system where there is uh, exit to community, so communities can control the services that they use. All of that sounds great to me. And then I look at the technical and economic characteristics of the blockchain, and I go, this just doesn't do that, right? It just, and not only that, but it can't, right? So like, again, without getting into a lot of crazy technical detail, if you're going to have like a permissionless blockchain, you need civil resistance. You need to make sure that like the people who are voting to make a change aren't just the same person wearing a hundred hats. And if you're going to make it civil resistant, then you need to have disinterested third parties, like who don't care about the outcome, who do a bunch of something, they stake something or they do some work or whatever. And if you're going to do that, then you have to have some way to incentivize them to do it. And if you're incentivizing them out of the goodness of their hearts, then you don't even need any of this because you're just like, oh, I just found some people who have goodness in their hearts. So you can just throw away all of this and the blockchain is unnecessary. But if you're like, oh, maybe they're not good, then you need a reason to incentivize them. And that's going to be something involving speculation. And so now your community-owned thing is grounded in the idea that it will be controlled by people who don't give a shit about it and are only involved because they hope that um, something that they did will, will, they can speculate on something that the outcome is something that they did and gamble with it and make more money. And so this is just like a foundational disalignment in the story of worker owned, community owned, decentralized, whatever. And then the actual practical outcome of cryptocurrencies has not been a distribution of power in the sense of like reducing the number of billionaires what we've done is we've just increased the number of banks where billionaires can hide their money, right? So, you know, again, like if you're saying, well, we're going to decentralize finance, when when I hear that, I think the part of that that I like the sound of is reducing the number of like policy failure factories, which are billionaires, right? But this is just like making them more robust and harder to lay hands on. And I'm just not uh, all that interested in that. There is a kind of realm of distributed computation, peer-to-peer stuff that I'm very interested in that trades under the blanket name of subsidiarity, which comes out of like 16th century liberation Catholicism. I just found that out this week. Uh, But subsidiarity is just like this whole suite of technologies and systems designs that are grounded in like socially situated knowledge, socially situated identity, socially situated um, governance. And it's about like not using speculation to organize your systems, using solidarity to organize your systems. It's it's really cool, and I'm 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 on board for it. I'm on board for the goals of it. I just don't think that you get those goals by doing the thing that they say they're going to do. I also don't think it can ever be money. I just think that like for a thing to be money, that it needs two things. One is that there needs to be some liability that you can only settle with that thing. So like the reason U.S. money is money is you have to pay your taxes with it. And if you don't pay your taxes, they put you in prison, which means that if you have U.S. dollars, they will be valuable to someone because they're going to need U.S. dollars on April 15th. And so people will accept your dollars for work, and that makes the U.S. dollar valuable. Not only are there no liabilities that you can only settle with cryptocurrency, there are no liabilities that you can settle with cryptocurrency. Nothing is for sale in cryptocurrency except other cryptocurrency and NFTs and ransomware payments, right? Like there's like you cannot buy a Bored Ape hamburger at the Bored Ape hamburger hamburger stand with Bored Ape coins because of the other reason that cryptocurrency can't be money, 
which is that any economist, whether they're a Marxist or an, an Austrian, will tell you that if you have a commodity that has a fixed supply and a variable demand, that the price of that commodity will be variable, right? It'll be volatile because the number of people who want it will determine the price, right? Prices set by supply and demand meeting. That's the Laffer curve. If the supply never changes, if it's fixed, then the changes in demand will make the price go. Well, that's why they don't take board ape coins for board ape hamburgers because you're paying for your ground beef in dollars, but the exchange rate between dollars and board ape coins is different from second to second. And so you go broke if you try to take uh, cryptocurrency in exchange for things that are denominated in stable currencies because stable currencies are stable because we have central bankers who alter the money supply based on the amount of demand that we have for money, right? So all of that is my wonky way of saying like, 96% of all conversations involving blockchain are non-consensual. Are, are non and I think that the goals of the cryptocurrency movement are very noble, at least for some of those people, but the actual use of cryptocurrency won't achieve those goals. Dear God, I'm going to do this and ask a follow-up question. Oh, God. Oh. I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, pre-apologies to everyone. Um, that's cryptocurrencies. Right. There's the other side, which is the NFT. Uh. Such a nice event, Neely. Yeah. Look, I think we're at time, so I'm just trying to do you a little hallraker do, here. But again, it's one of those things where it yeah. doesn't do any of the things they say it does, right? right. So, so an NFT, like, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even ask the question. So an NFT, an NFT was, you know, so Anil Dash invented NFTs as a way of allowing artists to thank people who did something nice for them. And what it was is like, if you paid me a compliment or gave me some money or whatever it was and it was related to something that I made, I could then put an entry in the blockchain that would be there forever or as long as the blockchain was maintained that said, Neelay Patel, Cory Doctorow's little brother, this date, right? And that was all it was. It was, like, it was like a little plaque on the front of a building, except that I could put any URL in there. So I could put this little plaque on anyone's building uh, and that was why they were like, this isn't a thing you can sell because that would be bananas, right? This is just a thing that like is socially situated. Like Neele values it because he knows that the building I put the plaque in front of is my building. And, but, um, the only way Neelay can sell that to someone else is if they like intrinsically trust him. If we actually just try and trade them, it doesn't make any sense. So now you have this thing where people are able to issue NFTs that relate to any URL arbitrarily they can also, even if they control the URL and they're saying, oh, well, this is a testament to the uniqueness of this NFT that I just sold you, they can just copy that thing at another URL. So it's like nft.html. They could have another one called nft1.html and they and it could they could be byte identical except for the file name. They could issue that. All the promises about the smart contracts that go along with it, the pay artists are completely nonsensical. So they say, oh, you've got a smart contract that pays a royalty every time an NFT um, trades hands. Well, the smart contract is a little computer program that says if an event called sale occurs, then create this royalty split and send the royalty to this wallet. So if I want to sell the NFT to you and I don't want to pay a royalty, I don't call it a sale. I call it a sale underscore one. And the smart contract goes, was there a sale taking place? And it, it looks through its list of things and it goes, I don't have an event here for sale underscore one. Uh, that doesn't relate to my business logic. That NFT can now be transferred without a royalty. Like none of the claims made about NFTs stand up to even the most cursory scrutiny, right? And so like there are a tower of nonsense and, you know, the epitome of a speculative bubble. And so 
they have to like have a coherent story for us to critique them on a substantive level, but they don't have a coherent story. This story is like on a technical level incoherent. They're like, what if water wasn't wet? What if gravity didn't exist? What if three was equal to two? Think of all the cool things we could do. And like, sure, thought experiments, great. But then they say, guess what? Three equals two. Let's go do those cool things. And you look and you're like, I'm pretty sure that's three. They're like, no, it's two, it's two. You know, at a certain point, you just have to say, guys, you're just making a lot of noise about nothing. And either you're lying to everyone else to steal from them or you're lying to yourself. Either way, I don't want to have anything to do for, with, with you. Rebecca, you're a copyright professor. When you examine the claims, do you have a, as visceral reaction as Corey does? NFTs are a grift. They've always been a grift. Still there's, a, there's like a blockchain investor with like a million dollars outside. <laughs> He's like, oh, shit. He's like walking the other way. Um, well, so I'll just ask you a more philosophical question with them. A lot of the reasons that the choke points exist is because the physical scarcity of culture has gone away because of the internet and technology, right? When artists would sell a CD to you, 15 bucks a sale, you could see the transaction, you could have the second sale without DRM in the way, all these sorts of things. Uh, books, same deal. Amazon could not DRM a physical copy of a book. You had to print the books, ship them, all the things happened along the way. Lots of middlemen made money along the way there. We've disintermediated all of those middlemen. We now sell digital culture. It is infinitely copyable. And we mostly, I know there's a chapter in the book about the difference between streaming and downloading, or at least a line, but we mostly stream it to people. We treat it as ephemeral and not as a collection of atoms. NFTs for all their many problems, and I agree with you on the many problems, are an attempt to reintroduce scarcity to digital culture. Is that the right philosophical direction to go in? Or is it remake the business models for ephemeral culture? Can I push back on that idea that the choke points come from the transition to digital, right? We have always had these in creative labor markets. Um, the Right from when the very first copyright statute was created in England in um, 1710, the stationers' company were the ones that were controlling everything. When those rights expired. So this, this was an attempt to like take control away from stationers company, give some to authors. Uh, when those rights expired, then those publishers just refused. They had a gentleman's agreement with one another. They refused to publish the books of other publishers so that the authors still had no choice and they still managed to sew them up. We've seen these choke points throughout history in the music market, like maybe worse than anything else, when those record labels that I was talking about and those music publishers were the ones that controlled physical distribution into stores, right? What we saw in the early 2000s around the Napster Wars, yes, there was carnage, there was blood on the walls. A lot of uh, creators and uh, people who worked in the music industry saw their incomes absolutely decimated. We don't want to romanticize this period, but one thing that the, the switch to digital did was it democratized access to these markets. It allowed musicians to reach audiences without having to go through those middlemen. And so I think that's the secret. What we've got to be doing to, to, to break these choke points, the philosophy we've got to be aiming for, is to put the conditions in place where we can encourage new entrants, where we can... Um, where we can support countervailing producer power in the hands of artists and investors. That's the philosophy we should be working towards. Yeah, I, I think that you have to remember that lots of things happened over the last 40 years. So one was the growth of digital technology, 
Right, but the Apple II Plus went on sale in the summer of 1979 as Ronald Reagan hit the campaign trail. And digital technology is as old as neoliberalism, like almost precisely as old as neoliberalism. And one of the things that happened under neoliberalism was a dismantling of the regulations that we use to stop firms from accumulating power that they could use to, to put the screws to their workforce. And, you know, there, there's, a, there's a much more sort of parsimonious explanation for what happened to give these companies power over their workforce than the explanation that they just used, um, uh, that, they, that it was, has to do with digital lack of scarcity, which is that they bought all their competitors and then sewed up their audience using law and technology, right? And then that gave them bargaining power over their workers. And you, you don't have to reach to exotic explanations because it's right there, right? How did Universal Music end up controlling so much of the music industry? They bought all their rivals. There's actually a great book called Creative License by Kimberly McLeod that we cite in the book about the history Peter of sampling. Peter yeah. mm -mm. Peter DeCola as well. Peter DeCola, thank you, yeah. Uh, about about um, sampling. And, you know, when sampling started, the assumption was there was just no copyright interest and it was either a fair use or it was de minimis, it was too short to bother with in the law. And so people just made albums with lots of samples. Paul's Boutique, like hundreds of samples. Takes a nation of millions to hold us back. Hundreds of samples. The two top grossing hip hop albums, right? Had tons of samples, none of them cleared. And then we got a couple of court cases. It became the norm that you cleared samples. Uh, and for a short period, Heritage Acts made a lot of money. People who signed terrible record deals and made R&B and Soul, almost all black, almost all having signed these, these um, deals when they were quite young and didn't know better under, under super abusive, coercive conditions. And they got paid for a while. But the other thing that happened was that in order to license music, in order to sample it, you had to be signed to a label because the labels didn't want to return your calls if you didn't originate with a label. And so everyone had to sign the contract with the label if they wanted to make music that had samples in it. And when you signed that contract, you signed away your right to revenue from your samples. And so you just had this flywheel where everybody wanted to make music that had samples in it, had to sign up and sign away the right to have their own music sampled, and it just ended up in the label's pocket. You can see how that mechanism worked. It's not like the, the shifting of value from performers' side of the balance sheet to labels' um, investors didn't come about as a result of it being too easy to copy things, right? It came about as a result of like this, this intermixture of copyright and, uh, and negotiating leverage that allowed them to just take control. Uh, and I think that we, we, need to, we need to really look at the technical, when, pe when they say, oh, this is how it happened, you need to ask what was the technical mechanism by, by which the lack of scarcity caused that. And if you can't find the explanation, I think you should look somewhere else. And I think we, we have a lot of those explanations. I'm not saying digital played no role, right? But I'm just saying that, like, let's not overweight this as, like, a clash of civilizations between the, you know, information wants to be free crowd and the information wants to be expensive crowd. And, like, let's look at it as, like, a, a, a clash of material class interests related to monopolies in their workforces, I feel like I could definitely do another full 90 minutes yes. on whether you should pay for samples and argue both sides uh, really quite ferociously, but we have gone 90 minutes. I want to end here. Uh, it's a good question, and I think all three of us probably have different answers to it. It is a little individual action, but I think it's the right place to end. How do we as individuals, particularly artists who are not getting paid enough right now, keep our heads up and survive? 
I mean, and you have survived every version of the creative yeah. economy. I mean, I, 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 so I don't kid myself that I'm not very lucky. I'm very, very lucky to have, to have gotten where I've gotten. You know, the when I talk to students that I teach as writers, I say like, don't quit your day job is not just a snarky thing. It's actually sound advice. It it gives you something to write about as well. It's a reason that I left EFF for a while to to write full time and then went back. It wasn't just money. It was because like working for a nonprofit is not a lucrative thing to do. It was because I, I needed things to write about. And, and also that of all the students I've taught and who have gone on to success, the ones who had the most success were not the ones who were the most promising. They're the ones who stayed at it when they were discouraged. And I think that in the arts labor world, irrespective of monopoly or not monopoly, it's a always only ever been a tiny fraction of the people who wanted to make art, who found a professional living doing it. Lots of people have made art, but who were able to support themselves doing it. And the chances for success are so narrow and so few and far between that you have to keep plugging in ways that don't make any sense. I think this is one of the reasons that we get treated so badly is because like the only people who stick with it are people who can't bear to quit, right? It's the joke about the kid who runs away and joins the circus. His dad finds him shoveling elephant shit and says, son, come home. And he says, what? And quit show business. <laughs> and so I, I, I think that none of that is like a guarantee of success, but I think it is a necessary precondition for it. And I think that will be true no matter what happens. Like my goal is not full employment for every artist, except in a kind of UBI way. My goal is that if your art makes money, that you get to keep the money. I think that's like that's a that's a much more reasonable goal that we can reach to. Also, I would like UBI for artists. But I think we can like before we get to UBI for artists, we can just say if your art is making money, you should get that money. For me, honestly, with a lot of my artist friends, I don't know how they do keep their heads up. Um, but for the ones who are more successful at it, aside from everything that Corey said, which I agree with, it's, I think it's, it's around connection and community. It's around talking. I, I think for a lot of people, when you're not making very much money, it can feel like a real failure. You're, you're slogging it out. You're working so hard. You're like, especially if you're writing, you know, that's the, the, that sports reporter who said, what, writing's not, writing's not difficult. I just go over to my desk, sit down, open my typewriter, open my veins and bleed, right? <laughs> it, it, it hurts. Um, but by talking about it, by understanding, like not trying to hide how hard it is and how little money that you're making and then understanding that it is like that for other people too, that's one of the places to find solidarity and one of the ways to, you know, mobilize together, which is one of the things we bang on a lot about in the book, but also just to make the getting through the day-to-day -day a little bit easier. Yeah. My minor addition to this is that there's a difference between having an audience and having an algorithmic audience. And as I read the book, the thing that struck me is we often misconstrue the audience provided by algorithms as actual audience, and that lets the choke point become ever stronger. I think that's well said. Thank you, Neelay. Thank you, Neelay. I don't understand why I have the last word here, but it was my answer to the question. <laughs> um, we've got a few more. Does this room want to stay here for another few minutes, or do we want to? Okay. The feel, question. Feel free to just wander off and leave at any point. Uh, yeah. Don't. And if he starts talking about NFTs again, do it. Oh no, there's a metaverse question here. That's how we're going to really end the room. 
Um, the questions have gotten a little wonkier, but I think they're actually quite interesting. Um, why are the PROs, professional rights organizations, still around if the system isn't working for anyone who needs it? That person obviously asked the question. Whoever just, whoever just <laughs> chuckled ferociously. Future Music Coalition founder Brian Zisk wants to know. Uh, you answer that. Okay. So again, we've talked about we've talked about these these powerful interests right throughout tonight, and the collecting societies are really powerful. One of the reasons for that uh, is that they, frankly, very often they use artists as stalking horses to mask other people's economic interests. Um, and they, they speak for artists, but very often it's in ways that puts money directly into their own pockets and supporting these inefficient structures that we've been talking about. It's much easier to set these things up than to get rid of them. Um, and Corey and I, I think, are both not huge fans of a lot of international copyright treaties. Uh, there's a couple that do a great job, like the Marrakesh Treaty for the um, people with visual impairments. But I think this is a place where there is actually a really interesting possibility for an international treaty to get countries on board with creating a modern global shared database that gets rid of these inefficiencies, like a global pact that we all get rid of this corruption. I'm not saying hashtag not all collecting societies, but... <laughs> a lot of them, but gets rid of the corruption, the mismanagement, the waste in order to get that money more directly into artists' pockets. One of the things that we talk about in the book is that um, these rights-collecting societies, often uh, if there's money that comes in that's not attributable to an artist, they get to spend it on whatever they want. Um, if we mandated that they had to spend it on finding artists to give them the money, like building a better database technology, uh, instead of instead of incentivizing them to not find the artist who, whose money they're holding, we could uh, make it so that they they had to use that money to find those artists. Yeah, and get the governance right too. Like we've got collecting societies that put aside um, certain uh, a certain percentage of what the license fees that they collect um, into things like cultural funds. And the idea is that's money that can go out to support new creation of works. Fantastic, except. In some countries like Australia, it's the board of the collecting society that decides where that money goes without any kinds of guidelines or any kind of transparency around it. What that means is that artists are incredibly reluctant to speak up against them because they fear that one of the last remaining sort of um, substantial sources of arts funding might no longer come their way if they do, right? We've definitely got a lot of work to do on the governance. Uh, you brought up actually international treaties, international law. We have a great question here. A lot of what we talked about is based in the U.S. There has been a lot of movement around the world. What's the potential to affect change by passing legislation in non-U.S. jurisdictions? The example here is the GDPR, which I think is another potential hour of debate. But I'll give you the Australian link tax situation where, public, where Google and Facebook have to pay publishers. I was actually going to say, could we talk about the different, like the DSM directive instead? Because that's something that's really, really interesting. The European Digital Single Market Directive has got some pretty problematic stuff in it, but it's also got some um, protections that are actually squarely aimed at helping creators. And that includes a transparency mandate over things like artist pay so that uh, every member state has to enact uh, laws to allow creators and performers to, to find out much more about um, how their works are being used and paid for. There's things like 
use it or lose it rights, if the work's no longer being ex commercially exploited for artists to be able to get their rights back. And then there's um, requirements as well for, for fair and reasonable remuneration, like, like minimum wages for creative work effectively. And I think that those are really important um, interventions that all other countries can learn for, from. And we're seeing them get implemented right now and we can see ways that it's being done well and less well. And we should be following that really closely and thinking about much more direct mandates to, to support authorship here as well. One of the wild... Everywhere, things. by here. Logical here, everywhere. <laughs> yeah. One of the wild things about, about uh, international copyright law is often things that are actually good in the American system that other countries try to enact. The American, the U.S. trade representative will show up and go like, that's communism. Uh, so the, the South African uh, parliament has been trying to pass uh, fair use law for years. I think they're finally going to do it. It looks like they will. But the greatest impediment to this fair use law, which is basically a copy-paste of American fair use, uh, has been the U.S. trade representative who keeps showing up and going like, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> only, only a stupid person would have this law. Oh, and by the way, that will violate your international obligations under the Berne Convention. Yeah, yeah, it's, this is, it's <laughs> I mean, illegal we can to have, have it. this law. We can have it, but nobody else. Mm -mm. So one of, the, one of the better elements of American copyright law that still has room for improvement is something called termination, right, that Rebecca is one of the world's experts on which is the right after 30 years to send a letter to the copyright office, file some paperwork and say, or 35. 35. 35. <laughs> file, file paperwork. I knew as I said it, I got it wrong. File paperwork at the copyright office and say, I know I signed away my rights forever, but I'm, I'm taking them back. That was a great idea in, in theory, right? Um, in practice, like I said, you, you got these people, these powerful lobbyists for the content industries in this closed door room. There are transcripts that I managed to track down, which are just incredible to see that the, the quiet parts that they were saying out loud. Um, and they managed to water it down from the initial proposal, which was that after 25 years, 25 years after an artist transferred a copyright, they would just automatically get it back. And then by then, everybody knows what the work is worth. You've got a chance to, you know, maybe you, uh, you license it back to the same company or maybe, you know, you know, maybe you get a fresh advance. Maybe they, they invest something in publicity. Maybe you give it to a different kind of company. Um, we can see like how different the music landscape would be if that original proposal had come out because the music uh, the, the, the record industries would know they couldn't just rely on having your copyrights for 95 years, right? They would every 25 years have to be putting the conditions in place to make them more attractive than a competitor. And then they wouldn't have such control over the future of the market. Now, what actually happened in that closed door room is they like made it as impossible to use as, as, they, as they could. So now it's after 35 years. It's not automatic. You've got so many hoops to jump through and it's really unclear uh, exactly when it will be possible to do this um, successfully. And a, research, uh, a study that my team did where we did, uh, we scraped the Copyright Office database, we got a, a, every single copyright termination notice that's ever been issued since the, the, those, those laws were created in 1976. Um, and we looked at how it was actually being used. And they, they're hardly being used at all because creators know that there is going to be so much expense and uncertainty if they really want to push this that there's absolutely no point. Okay, so it's a great idea in practice, implemented in a terrible way. We've got 
every possibility in the world of doing it better if we do actually want to take creators' rights seriously. And, and some creators in the U.S. have used it successfully. Mm-hmm. Sweet Valley High, yep. all of those books, mm-hmm. um, Babysitter's Club books, mm-hmm. George Clinton's catalog, a bunch of early Stephen King books and Dean Kuhn's books. They, they were all terminated in this way. Now the heirs of Stan Lee are trying to get the characters back from Marvel Disney, which is pretty wild. Uh, but um, and, the, and the person who made the game uh, of life for, for the Hasbro Corporation, his kids are trying to get the game of life back from Hasbro. So all of that is, is interesting. It's like it actually has made a material difference to a small number of creators, but a substantial one. And so Canada contemplated a, uh, a, 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 a termination right. Our, our homegrown hero, Brian Adams, I'm a secret Canadian. We're like serial killers. We look like everyone else and we're everywhere. But, uh, but, but you know, Brian Adams went out and, and stumped for, uh, for, for this. And the U.S. trade representative was like, I'm sorry, guys, that's communism. <laughs> you know, that, that would just be, you just can't do this. It would be so bad for you. You don't understand. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing the extent to which the best features of American copyright law are the, the only ones that America doesn't foist on the rest of the world. I think you guys are going to go sign some books. Be well. Thank you so much. This Thank was you great. all for coming. Thank you, Thank Neela. Thank you for coming out. Thanks again to Rebecca Giblin and Corey Doctoral for asking me to moderate the discussion about choke point capitalism. I hope you go buy the book. It's great. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. As always, I'd love to know what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter for now. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It was produced by Creighton Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive director is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.